0: So, uh, let, me, let me talk for a minute about what we're going to be doing the, the next few weeks in terms of uh, the, the scripture we're going to be working through. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 12 uh, this morning, so you can go ahead and turn there or, or, or flip there in your bulletin. Starting next week, we're going to be doing an Advent series uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, Christmas in Genesis, so it's maybe a title for a country and western song, but um, for those of you who knows what that means. So we're gonna we're gonna spend four weeks in Genesis, and then we're gonna come back in January and look at Samuel one more week, and then we're gonna do a series related to the ministry teams that we're seeking to form over the month of January. So that's kind of where we're headed. So two more weeks in Samuel before we before we finish it up. But today, uh, what we're gonna look at in chapter twelve are three marks of Samuel's ministry, and I'm. I'm giving credit for this outline to a sermon I listened to from, from Alistair Begg, although his was 50 minutes and mine is going to be much, much shorter, uh, we think. Uh, but, but, but three marks of Samuel's ministry, and, and these are the three Samuel's ministry was a ministry of prayer, it was a ministry of teaching, and it was a ministry of integrity. A ministry of prayer, a ministry of teaching, and a ministry of integrity. Uh, These are things that my ministry as your pastor needs to be marked by. Uh, These are things that your ministry to other people needs to be marked by. These are also things that should mark the ministry of our ruling elders. And you say, well, we don't have any ruling elders yet. And that's right. Uh, We are looking for men over the the course of the next year uh, to, to be our three ruling elders so that we can become a particular church these are three of the things that all mark the lives of these men uh, who would serve us as elders. So these are things we need to be identifying and seeking to be if, if we would seek that office as well. So uh, let's read the, the text, and then we'll talk about those three things. First uh, Samuel chapter twelve, starting in verse one. This is the word of God. And Samuel said to all Israel, "Behold, I have obeyed your voice." And all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes to it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well." But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but, re- but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king." So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, this is your word, uh, and you have kindly given it to us in words that we can understand. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would be uh, kind to us now and and speak to us through the preaching of your word. Uh, We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So three marks here is what I want us to look at, three marks of Samuel's ministry. Uh, Number one, Samuel's ministry was a ministry of prayer. Samuel's ministry was a ministry of prayer. Now, if you remember way back in chapter one of Samuel, Samuel himself was actually an answer to prayer. You remember his mother, Hannah, was barren and unable to have children, and she prayed to the Lord for a son and promised to devote him to God and his service if the Lord answered her prayer. Her prayer was so intense, if you'll remember, that Eli the priest actually thought she was drunk. And she said to him, no, I have been pouring out my soul to the Lord. And then Samuel is conceived and answered that prayer, and he grows up to be a man who himself cries out to the Lord. Uh, Chapter 7, Samuel says, gather all Israel and I will pray to the Lord for you. And then verse 9 of that chapter, Samuel cries out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. In chapter 12 that we just read, Samuel cries out to the Lord, and God sends thunder and rain in answer to that prayer, which verse 17 tells us was during the time of the wheat harvest, which was actually the the beginning of the dry season. So God miraculously answers Samuel's prayer. In Jeremiah 15, we read God saying, You guys have messed up so badly this time. Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to these people. Even if it were Moses and Samuel who were praying, I wouldn't hear your prayer. You can see those were marked in the Old Testament as these great men uh, of prayer. Samuel was a man of prayer. So his reply to the people's request here in chapter 12 that he pray for them shouldn't be too surprising to us. He says in verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Now, his willingness to pray isn't that surprising, but maybe the way he says it is a little surprising to us. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Do you ever think of failing to pray as a sin against the Lord? And like when you're thinking about I, I, this is a sin and this is a sin and this is a sin, do you ever think of prayerlessness as a sin against the Lord? You know, we, we think, well, I should start praying. I need to spend more time praying. And we feel this kind of low-grade guilt sometimes because we know it's this spiritual discipline that would be helpful to us. But how often do we actually classify prayerlessness as disobedience, as trusting in self, as trusting in man instead of actually trusting in God. Now, one of the reasons Samuel looked on this so strongly is because this was actually part of his job description as a leader of God's people. Uh, we see that of, of, of the prophets in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in Acts, Acts chapter 6, we read that deacons are appointed for the specific reason that the apostles can devote themselves the ministry of the word, and to prayer. Like we, we've got a, a physical need that needs taken care of, but these guys need to devote their time to the ministry of the word and to prayer. And so the office of the diaconate is created. So depending on the calling God has placed on you, you're, you're more or less responsible. Or let me put it this way. Some have a greater responsibility for prayer than others. Uh, as your pastor, that's part of my job description, to pray for you. Uh, but that can be difficult sometimes, not because y'all are hard to, to pray for, um, but, but it's hard because you know sometimes I want to be doing something. And prayer doesn't feel like you're doing anything sometimes. It's hard because we collectively want to be productive. We're a very producing, getting things done society. Prayer doesn't seem that productive sometimes. Writing a sermon feels productive. Having somebody say, hey, that was a good sermon, your productiveness has been rewarded when that happens. I can see results from that. Nobody knows whether I pray or not. You know if I show up to visit you at the hospital, but you don't know whether I've prayed for you or not. And so a pastor can actually be very busy, and a church can be very busy and have a lot of things going on when the pastor isn't actually praying as he should. And so Samuel reminds me, reminds us, far be it from me that I should sin against you by failing to pray for you. Uh, Ruling elders, we're we're seeking to raise up ruling elders in our midst. Their vocation is in prayer. But if you take on the, the office of ruling elder, you're saying, I want to be a part of praying because their job as a ruling elder is to spend time in prayer. You're saying, I want to be a part of shepherding the flock. I want to take responsibility for a a part of this flock being under shepherds. And I'm committing myself to praying for this church, to praying for the the people of Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm willing to give up part of the time I usually devote to, to whatever hobby, and I want to pray... For these people, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. But it's not just pastors and elders who are called to pray. The Bible calls all of God's people over and over to pray. Uh, who are the people right now that you have opportunity to influence? Are you praying for them? You know, the, the, the lady at work that you know doesn't know Jesus. Or the guy that you bump into on a regular basis at the gym and you can't figure out what should I say to them are you simply praying for them Uh, we're told in scripture pray for those who rule us and have authority over us are we praying for our leaders in government parents are you praying for your children Uh, one of my favorite lines in in the book of praying life is where um, Paul Miller makes a comment that some of his best parenting has come through prayer like, I, don't, I don't know what to do, but I know I can pray. Some the best parenting comes through prayer. so so here's a thought for for parents we got a lot of parents with young children. What are some of the areas that you want to see your children grow spiritually? What are your your spiritual dreams for your children? Now, who do you want to see them grow up to be? Who do you want them to be? What do you want their future spouse to be like? Where do you see them? struggling spiritually i want to suggest that you take however many that was four or five things write those down on the index card and simply begin to pray through those things for your children and be persistent as the scripture tells us to don't give up it's, it can be a lifelong thing uh, continue to pray that god will be at work in your children's lives uh, as a congregation as we move forward with with planning this church do we really believe that, that prayer is the work? That, that's really what would we've got to, to be about, is to be a praying church. Uh, Exodus 17, Israel goes into to battle against Amalek, and Moses sends Joshua into the battle, and he goes up onto the top of the hill, and he stands holding his staff up over his head, praying and interceding for the people to the Lord as they fight the battle. And we read that whenever Moses has his hand up and he's in this posture of interceding, Israel's winning. And then when it drops, Israel starts losing. And when he picks it up, they start winning again. Uh, And and finally, two guys come up beside him and they get him a, a stone to sit on. And then they hold his hands up in prayer. They joined with him in the battle. And Israel wins the battle that day. Are we... Are we holding one another up? Are we holding our hands up together in prayer? Do we, do we know each other well enough to actually pray for each other? Are we praying beyond just our daily needs? Uh, Tim Keller has a great little article entitled um, Kingdom-Centered Prayer, and I'll, I'll email this to you. So don't, I'm going to read a little bit of it so don't feel like you've got to write this down, but I'll email this out this week or put it on the Facebook page. He says, throughout the Old and New Testaments and church history, every spiritual awakening, every spiritual awakening was founded on corporate, prevailing, intensive, kingdom-centered prayer. We cannot create spiritual renewal by ourselves, but we can prepare the altar and ask God to send His Holy Spirit to change our hearts, our churches, and our communities. And then he lists these three marks of what that looks like. What does this look like when spiritual renewal, when spiritual revival actually starts in the community? And there are three things he lists. He says, first, there's an outpouring of the Spirit on and within the congregation so that the presence of God among his people becomes evident and palpable. There's an outpouring of the Spirit on the congregation. He writes, when this happens, sleepy Christians wake up. That is, there is a new and deeper conviction of sin and repentance, not just for behavioral sins, he writes, but actually for sins of the heart uh, as well. They experience a far more powerful assurance of the nearness and love of God, with the end result that Christians become both humbler and bolder at the same time. Nominal Christians, or Christians in name only, begin to realize they don't actually have a relationship with Christ, and they get converted. When this happens, it begins to electrify people. There's an outpouring of God on the congregation. Secondly, as a result of this outpouring of the Spirit, new people are brought into the church and it begins to grow. He writes, on the one hand, the renewed believers create a far more attractive community of sharing and caring and often great worship. This can attract people from the outside. On the other hand, Christians who begin to experience God's beauty, power, and love put their relationship with Christ and the church first in their lives, and they become radiant and attractive witnesses, more willing and confident to talk to others about their faith, more winsome when they do so, and more confident in their own church, and thus more willing to invite people to visit it. As the, the Spirit is poured out, lives are changed, the church becomes a more attractive body, you become more winsome in our witness, Thirdly, there is a full impact on the community surrounding the church and even the broader cultural. And he writes, we, we, we become more concerned with social justice and with the issues in the culture surrounding us. So, if that's what it looks like, this pouring out of the Spirit, where the people of God are changed, where they become more concerned with the loss, where they become more concerned with the culture around them, how does it come? And he, he says this way, it's through prayer that's corporate, prevailing, intensive, and kingdom-centered. Uh, it's focused on God's presence and kingdom. But, but the prayer that brings this type of revival is focused on God's presence and God's kingdom. Uh, and then he, he, he puts it this way. Uh, Jack Miller talks about the difference between maintenance and frontline prayer meetings maintenance prayer meetings are short mechanical and totally focused on physical personal needs inside the church pray pray for my head pray for my kidneys pray you know pray for aunt margaret uh this is what he's calling kind of and those things are good but that's sort of a maintenance mentality um frontline prayer has three basic traits and i and you might want to write these down and think about these a request for grace to confess sins and humble ourselves a compassion and zeal for the flourishing of the church and a yearning to know God, to see his face and to see his glory. Like that's a different way of praying than I think we often pray. A request for grace so that I can confess myself. I don't know if I want that kind of grace where I'm running around confessing myself. But he's saying that's how revival comes is we actually humble ourselves and say, you know what? I'm a sinner. I say that all the time. God, would you give me the grace so that I can actually own that and own that in specific ways? A zeal for the flourishing of the church, for the gospel, and a yearning to know God. Like, how much does that mark our prayers? God, I would would know you better. I would know your grace better. And then secondly, he writes, it's bold and specific, and it's prevailing and corporate. So, I'm going to send this out, uh, this this little article on kingdom-centered prayer, and I want to challenge us as a church to figure out how to put that into practice, to to figure out how Grace Presbyterian Church can can be a church that practices corporate, prevailing, kingdom-centered prayer. Uh, We don't have an adult Sunday school class right now. It may be that that's a good time where we can gather people and we can pray each Sunday morning. Uh, it may be that we become more intentional in our community groups about, hey, we're gonna we're gonna make this kingdom-centered prayer a, a, a part of our time. Uh, but that's one of the things I want our our ministry teams, when they assemble in January, to start thinking about how do we become this type of church where corporate, prevailing, kingdom-centered prayer is a big deal to us. Where it's a big deal to us. I need to pray. Elders need to pray. Parents need to pray. We as a church need to gather and pray. Far be it from me, says Samuel, that I would sin against God by failing to pray for you. Uh, secondly, his ministry is marked by teaching. In verse 23, he says, I will instruct you in the good and the right way. you know, maybe this is self-evidence, but I think it's good for us to remember every once in a while that, that at Grace Presbyterian Church, we think teaching the Bible is a big deal. That we think teaching the Bible is a big deal. Second um, Timothy chapter 3, why do we think that? We read, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings These writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible makes us wise unto salvation. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul instructs Timothy in chapter 4, preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching he also tells him in verse 13 until i come devote yourself to the public reading of scripture i think about sometimes like when we have a long scripture passage and i'm like oh no we, we don't do we really have to read this much like we our attention spans are so short and yet yet paul's telling timothy devote yourself to the public reading of scripture like we We need the reading of scripture. God uses that in our lives to exhortation uh, and to teaching. And so God works through the preaching and the teaching of his word to convict and to convert and to encourage and to grow His people. So we want to be all about that. That starts with me uh, as your pastor. But that also includes the people that we are going to elect as, as ruling elders as well. Uh, one of the qualifications given for ruling elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that the elder must be able to teach. That doesn't necessarily, elder needs to be somebody that's comfortable standing up front and, and teaching and delivering a sermon. It may be teaching a Sunday school class. It may be teaching 101. Uh, it may be somebody that's just good at, when you interact with people, the scripture is just flowing out of you, but you're able to communicate the truth of the gospel we need to find elders who can instruct us in the good and the right way we need men who will lead small group bible studies women who will lead small group bible studies Uh, deuteronomy 6 tells us we're to teach the commandments of god to our children Uh, as christians we don't say i'm not going to try to influence my children's religious choice i want them to kind of figure this out on their own. No, we're to, to teach them and train them. We take vows that say we're going to do in that do that in, when we baptize them. So I just kind of ask your parents, how, how's that going? Where do you need help with that? Are you, are you teaching them the whole story of the Bible, using things like the, the Jesus Storybook Bible? Are you using the catechisms? You know, you, we've got these in the bulletin every week. You can take these home and get your kids to memorize these catechism questions or to talk about them or to use the, the children's catechism depending on uh, their age? Are you teaching them the, to memorize Scripture? They, they really can. Are you teaching them to memorize Scripture? Are you teaching them to pray and, and praying with them? Uh, we teach through words and, and we teach through example. We always talk about that um, there's this old country song I always think about where the kid says something, some word he's not supposed to use, and the dad said, where'd you learn that? He said, well, I've been watching you. And then later he sees the kid praying beside his bed. He's like, where'd you learn to pray? He says, I've been watching you. So our, our children see these things, both the, both the good and the bad from us. We need to, to teach with our words and with our example. Uh, Samuel's ministry was marked by teaching it's marked by teaching and by prayer and then finally it's marked by integrity uh this is kind of an interesting start to this chapter samuel says um he's about to bring a case against the people of israel but he kind of puts himself on trial first he says testify against me whose ox have i taken or whose donkey have i taken who have i defrauded tell me and i'll and i'll restore it to you and they say you you haven't done any of that um Samuel was a man of integrity. He taught them what was good and right, but then he lived in that way as well. When I think of the word integrity, I think of its structural integrity. You know, think of a set of wooden stairs uh, and, and you want those to be structurally sound, but sometimes they can appear structurally sound when they begin to rot on the inside and so you step on them and you crash through. And so these can, can sometimes look good on the outside, but on the inside, they're decaying and, and, and they're falling apart. And that's so easy for us to, to put on this veneer of, of, of doing the right thing when inside things are not going in that direction as, at all. Um, sometimes I think it's like peeling back the layers of an onion. You know, we've got the outside church layer where everything looks okay, uh, where we're involved in civic activities, we support good causes, uh, we go to the Rotary Club, but then you peel that back and the next layer. Our business, it doesn't look quite as outstanding the way we conduct our business. Then you pull that layer back and you look at the way we are around our family and you pull that layer back, and you look at the way we interact with our wives, our husbands, and you pull that layer back and you look at what goes on in our hearts and our minds. I guess often it's easy for this to look bright and shiny on the outside when inside that's not really who we are. Does who I am on the outside match up with who I am on the inside? We want to be a church of integrity. I want to be a pastor of integrity. We need elders who will be men of integrity. If you go to, I'm not going to go there this morning, but if you go to 1 Timothy 3 and start reading through those requirements for a ruling elder, like they're almost all character things. There's able to teach, and then there's this bunch of other things that have to do with your heart uh, and, and, and your character. So when we start uh, examining men to be officers at grace, we're going to ask you hard questions about what's going on in your heart, about what's going on in your life, about who you really are. Uh, we're going to ask your wife questions. Is this guy really who he presents himself to be every Sunday morning at church? We need men of integrity Now that doesn't mean it's it's hard to talk about this because everybody kind of goes, okay, I'm out. Um, that doesn't mean we're looking for sinless people otherwise we would we wouldn't be in business. Um, it doesn't mean we're looking for elders who never struggle with sin because we all have things we struggle with i remember a couple years ago listening to a very prominent pastor saying that he carries around a list of of kind of his besetting sins things that he struggles with in his wallet i'm like i don't know if i would do that but but he carries them around in his wallet so he can pull them out during the day and kind of give himself a checkup and and how am i doing And, and these are these are areas i struggle with and i need to be aware of and i need to be praying for these things um, this side of heaven, we're, we're all going to be inconsistent to some degree. But the gospel should be enabling us more and more to be honest about that, to be honest about where we're failing and, and enabling us and freeing us. because we know that we're accepted in Christ, we're able to bring our sins into the light and begin to work on those things and not hide those. And as we do that, the result is that our private lives and our public lives begin to line up more and more. I had a, um, this was not in this state. Uh, I had a friend tell me recently that his wife was working for someone. He had just been reelected to public office. He, he was around 80 years old and he just been reelected to this office again. And he died like right after he was reelected. And my friend's wife and someone else who worked for this man had to go in to clean out his, go clean out his offices. And he was a deacon in the church and well-respected in the community. And they found boxes after box after box of pornography. Like he was old school before, before internet and just, and just all kinds of stuff you don't want to know about. Stored in this man's office, he was a deacon in his church. He hadn't lived a life of integrity. The person he purported himself to be was not who he really was. And that's so sad, but y'all, that could easily be any of us. That could easily be any of us if we don't, when we find ourselves struggling with these things, if we don't bring them into the light, if we just leave them there and hide them, then 20, 30, 40 years from now, that could be you. That could be me. If we don't, when we see these things that we know are out of line, these things in our lives are not in line with our public persona, these sins, if we don't stop then and confess and repent uh, and seek to change, to, to deal with our sin. Maybe today you are listening to this and something there's something you've been hiding. Uh, there's some place you haven't been living with integrity, Maybe it's just you realize you haven't really been praying or you haven't been teaching and presenting the gospel to others, to your children, as you should. Um, Maybe there's some secret sin that, that you need to own today, that you don't need to let fester for 20 or 30 or 40 years. But you need to confess and repent and run to God, run to God and not away from him. Look what the text says in verse 19. So the the people have been convicted of their sin here. What do they do? And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And then I, I want you to really pay attention to Samuel's reply to them. Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Samuel says, repent, serve the Lord, but do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The Lord will not forsake his people whom he has chosen. That's grace. That's grace. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been bought with the blood of Jesus himself. He has paid the price for your sin. He has paid the price for the secret sin that you're struggling with now. You're, the price has been paid by one who himself lived with complete integrity. Who prays for you even now. But he has paid that price. And he's saying to you, do not be afraid. Repent, but do not be afraid. Your God is a gracious God. And you can come to him with that sin and you will find forgiveness. Now, I think the choice you're faced with there is you can continue to hide it, and if you do, what you'll experience is what David experienced in the Psalms, where he says, "For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me." I mean, you can go ahead, go on living that life, wasting away, and you know what that feels like, or you can confess and bring that sin to the light, and what you find that is not rejection from the Lord. But what you find actually is grace that's sufficient to cover all your sin. Now, what if we really believe that? What if people knew that Grace Presbyterian Church is a church that really believed that? That we are honest about our sins. We are honest when we lack integrity. We confess them to one another. But we forgive one another. Because we understand the forgiveness that God has showered on us through Jesus Christ. That's a dream we can dream for our church, that the grace really would permeate our lives in this church. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we pray that, that our ministry here would be marked by uh, solid teaching, wherever that takes place, uh, that it would be marked by prayer, Uh, that you would help us to stir up within us a desire to pray, Lord, because we can't stir it up within ourselves. So help us to pray together and corporately and for kingdom things. And I pray that we would be people of integrity, that when we say this is the good and the right way and we tell people to go in that way, that we would ourselves live in that way. Uh, And yet, Father, we know the inconsistencies in our own hearts and lives, Uh, We know as well that your grace is sufficient to cover those things, Um, and so I pray that you would help us if if there are things that we know are are out of whack even this morning, uh, that you would help us to confess those to you uh, and to the people that we need to confess them to, but help us not to be people who hide, but people who bring our sin in the open and find grace and healing and forgiveness, and I pray that our church would be marked by that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.